Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All this work and you're like, never again! And then you see it and you're like, I want another one. <laughs> Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. I am so thrilled to welcome Marsha Stephanie Blake to the show today on behalf of social distance. But as I warned you, we talk about everything on Ladies Night. Oh my gosh. I mean, literally everything because this show forces me to do my reading and my research, which in, which also includes Instagram stalking you. And you have been mighty busy. You know... The Instagram thing is interesting. I have periods of busyness. There are definitely times where I, I just can't, I, like my brain can't focus on Instagram. But then during COVID, <laughs> most of us don't have very much to do. I've been a lot more prolific on Instagram lately, I have to say. It is it is mighty impressive. I'm going to get there because I have many specific questions about certain things you've been oh, posting. Oh, okay. I, really I, do. I find a lot of it very inspiring. But first, we can't go back to the beginning more than this. Is there any specific movie, show, performance, you name it, that made it click for you that you had to be an actor? Um, haha. Maybe... I mean, it would have to be when I was in college, right? Because that's kind of when I made the decision. Um, was there a specific thing? You know, I did the Scottish play, which you never should do when you're like a teenager in your early 20s. It's just ridiculous. Uh, I did Macbeth with David Harbour, who you guys know from Stranger Things. He was my Macbeth and I was Lady Macbeth, which is uh, hilarious because he is, I think, 6'4" and I am 5'2". Anyway, we were fantastic. Yeah. And I think maybe that might have been the moment where, because I remember not being so aware of myself in that performance. I'd done a few other things before that, but there was something about that play and that process where I probably insanely became, in my mind, Lady M. Um, and then I, I 
did it again recently, actually, in 2016 as a grown-up. And of course, it's so much different when you actually have children and a husband and you, you know, you're trying to like make something of your life as opposed to doing it when you're a college student. And it was still wonderful, but I have to say, like, I, I kind of want to do it another time. <laughs> Every it, it's one of those things. It's like Al Pacino did Merchant of Venice about 27 times, right? He kept pounding away at it. And in my mind, I thought, why would you want to do a play that many times? Like, you know, you do it, you get it out of your system. But he did Shylock, he did the film, he did like all these versions. And I kind of get it. Um, it's like, it's right about when you're done doing something that you feel like, ah, oh, God, I think I just figured it out. Or I'm like on the verge of figuring it out, right? And that's when usually your show ends or your run ends or your film, film ends. It's like right when you feel like you're on the verge of figuring it out. So anyway, I think that was the moment for me though. I think maybe it was probably doing Shakespeare. I knew I loved Shakespeare. I didn't know how much till then. We had this crazy cast that were oddly great actors. I mean, one of them, David Harbour. It, like we just had is sort of the, the perfect marriage of many things. Um, in the imperfect marriage of the Macbeths, but yeah. So was this when you were in an undergraduate program or when I you were pursuing the Undergrad, I'm talking about, I think I was like 19 or 20 years old. And David Harbour happened to be in your program? He was, yeah, he was, he's actually, a, I think he was a year below me in school, but yeah, he was also 19 or 20 years old. Like we weren't, we weren't grownups, like when we both took ourselves so very seriously, um, you know, we were we were kind of intense. Were you studying acting undergrad, or was there a switch that happened between acting in the uh, undergrad and the MFA? You know, I was studying acting to a certain extent, but I I still kind of didn't admit to myself that I wanted to be an actor, um, so. I was an English major. Well, let's go back a little bit. I was actually pre-med. I was pre-med. And I started acting on the side, let's say. And I liked it. And it was easy. And I was like, all right, I guess I could do this for fun. And I kind of got caught up into it. Once you, you know, I went to this small college. And once you started acting and you had any kind of talent, people would just ask you to be the next thing and the next thing. And before you know it, you're spending all your time, you know, in the theater department. Um, which is kind of what happened with me. I didn't really admit that I was going to be an actor till probably my senior year. I became a double major in theater and English. And then, you know, by the time I graduated, I was like, all right, I'm going to try the second thing. But I think I, I was also writing a lot and I thought maybe I would be a writer. You know, I'm from an immigrant family. And I think in my mind, like, you don't become an actor, you become a doctor, you become a teacher, you become a writer, you know what I mean? So like to wrap my head around it actually being a career, I wasn't quite there. It took me a while to get there. Two follow-ups to that. So the, the first stage of the process would be going into an MFA program. Cause I know a lot of folks out there, whether it's an acting program or film school, they might have to figure out whether it's worth paying to pursue a proper program like that versus getting out there and getting experience. So did you know you needed that program or was there any wavering in that respect? When I got out of undergrad, I joined this theater company that David and a couple of other friends had started. Um, while I was doing that, I was also doing 
bunch of off-off Broadway shows. Uh, but I was, you know, attempting. I none, nothing was paying me money. Nothing acting-wise was paying me money. So I was attempting to make money, um, just to live. I was living with my parents, you know, um, but just day-to-day -day living kind of things, and also just to try to figure out like what my next move was going to be. I did realize after being in New York for probably a year, a year and a half, that there was no way I could continue what I was doing and and be in, nothing wrong with off-off-Broadway acting, but you don't get paid. And so I felt like if I'm spending, and I was spending a, an extraordinary amount of time at the theater, and I felt like if I was going to do that, I would have to make a career of it, or I was gonna to have to make the decision to not make a career of it. So once I decided, okay, this is where I wanna spend all my time, but I need to make money because I need to be able to live. And I never wanted to be a starving artist. That was never an attractive option for me. I'm an immigrant, I don't wanna starve. I want to make money and I want to eat well. Um, and so I said, I think I'm gonna to have to get an MFA and take this thing really seriously. I didn't want to live paycheck to paycheck. So I wanted a certain level of survival, like maybe middle class. I'm talking middle class, right? So when I, you know, I wanted to be able to pay my rent and not worry about it or my mortgage and not worry too much about it. But I'm not talking about like extreme wealth or any of that. Um, and that's just from watching my parents struggle and knowing I didn't want that for my life endlessly, you know, in some, some where I'm, I'm, I have kids and I'm still like scrambling for, you know, to, to pay this bill or that bill and my kids can't go here or there because of it. So when I talk about making money, I'm really just talking about being able to live comfortably. I knew I wanted to live comfortably. I knew that if I kept doing off off Broadway, not getting paid, I was going to struggle. I, at that point, I was working, I was temping, so I was working maybe nine to five, and then I'd go in and I would rehearse seven to 11, seven to midnight. And then I lived all the way out in Queens, so I was two hours home, um, you know, an hour and a half, and like that late, sometimes it would be two hours home because I was on two trains and a bus to get back to my parents' house, and then I'd have to do it the next day. It was just too, it was like, <clears throat> I understood that that wasn't sustainable in a real way. Um, and so I think it was maybe when I got out of grad school, I had booked my, one of my first gigs was I, I was an understudy on Broadway and I was making more money than I'd ever made being an understudy, you know, being, a, getting Broadway money. And I was like paying a rent, you know, I was able to go out with my friends after the show and not be like looking at the bill with sweat dripping off my face. Um, so I think maybe that was, it was after graduate school, I was understudying the Crucible on Broadway. I was making real Broadway money. I was hanging out. I was being an actor in New York. I didn't have to have another job. I didn't have to temp. It was like the best feeling in the world. And I think that's when I said, if I can continue on this path, then I'll be okay. Now, mind you, I was still not quite living as a grown-up because my dad was paying my credit card bill. <laughs> but I was I was never crazy with credit cards. Like I didn't ever buy anything I couldn't afford. But I do remember thinking I was a grown up and my friends were like, slow down. Your dad is still paying your monthly credit card bill. Like you're, you know, you got a ways to go. Yeah, I'm not gonna tell you what I put my poor dad through as a, uh, a kid growing up in New York. <laughs> 
I still feel bad for him to this day. You still feel bad? A little bit, a little bit. So now going to an Instagram question I have for you, because one of the, one of the posts you did that caught my eye more so than most of them was the one that you did about one of your teachers. So I did want to ask what specifically was it about Ms. Hunter that really made a big impression on you? And is there anything, even as a young kid with a teacher, is there anything about the way that she taught you that you can now apply to the sets that you go on kind of as someone with a ton of experience working with a whole bunch of up and coming actors or even apply to the fact that now I'm remote schooling both my children. Huh? Uh, <laughs> trust me, Ms. Hunter is coming very handy in the last few months. The first thing about Ms. Hunter, and this will sound so ridiculous and vain and superficial, but she was the most stylish person. You know, when you're a kid and like grownups, you're like this thing, right? And you can't even, they don't, they don't wear anything you want to wear. They don't say anything you want to say. They don't listen to Miss Hunter was like, at the time, of course, I thought she was so old. She probably was 26 years old when, you know what I mean? When she was my middle school teacher, she was probably like this young woman, but she was insanely stylish. So that was the first thing. My entire class, it was not just me, my entire class was in love with her. We all still are. We all keep in touch with her. A lot of us keep in touch with her still. And I don't know, in the Instagram post, like she's styling in my Instagram post. She's gotta be in her 50s or 60s now. And she is like styling. Um, she was just like this beautiful, fabulous angel woman. And then, she was incredibly smart, right? So like, cause you know, of course your teachers are usually smart, but then they, they don't really, they, they, they never seem like the kind of smart that you really like street smart too. You know what I mean? Like she, she kind of knew what was going on with us. She always knew what was going on with us. It was actually kind of scary because we couldn't keep anything from Ms. Hunter. She was incredibly just intuitive so we loved her, but we also knew we couldn't hide anything from her. Not that we wanted to. So we told her all our secrets. Um, and, but she didn't, she wasn't really trying to be our friend. She was like that perfect adult who was like still an adult. She wasn't trying to be our cool friend, but she knew everything about us, but there was no judgment. It's weird. It's very rare that you meet someone like that as a kid. But I'm telling you, my entire class was obsessed with Miss Hunter. <laughs> I feel like that's a, like, I'm sure a lot of teachers out there are very, like, it's not, not even street smarts. I feel like it's an emotional smarts, but I feel like that's kind of like a next level ability to emotionally connect to someone so young, so much younger than you and be able to understand, or at least that's what I'm getting from this. And like, not like understand and not judge and in, in provide advice in a way that doesn't seem like they're telling you what to do. <clears throat> like she had all those levels. And of course, I'm only coming to this now as a grown up, right? As a kid, I just know that I loved her. As a grown up, I'm, I now I'm going through all the things. And you know, I see my kids like, when you realize, oh, she actually did this remarkable thing that we tried to achieve when we're relating to children and that we, I know as a parent, I worry that I won't get there. But it was this thing where we trusted her, 
we were a little bit afraid of her. I think it's kind of important to be a little bit afraid of grownups, <laughs> um, but afraid in like, we wanted to gain her respect. And if she was disappointed, it meant something to us. So we wanted to impress her, but, but we also knew that if we did something wrong, she was going to sort of handle it in the best way and she wouldn't judge us. It, it wouldn't make us feel horrible about ourselves. It's like a really remarkable sort of balance of all these icky things, right? I don't know. So it's with all she's the best. With all that mind and her setting such a good example for you so yeah. early on, how can you apply some of the things that she taught you to the work that you're doing now? I mean, it, it comes into question, it comes almost every day. I'm doing a lot of work now because I'm older and with younger actors, you know, they're playing my sons and daughters and even in dealing with my kids. I think a big part of relating to a younger person or getting them to trust you or getting them to say what they really mean to you is just like, don't interrupt them. Like it's as simple as that. Like let them speak, you know, and if they need a prompter every once in a while, by all means, but like, let them get the thought out before you insert what your opinion or what your advice is. Um, and I don't always do it. I know my nieces and nephews, I practice on my nieces and nephews before I had my own kids, because that's what you do. And I know they would be like, Auntie Marsha, you're, I can't believe you're saying that now because you used to just tell us <laughs> what to do. I'm like, yeah, because you were my practice kids. Um, <laughs> but you know, like that's, that's what you, you hope to get to a point where like they will trust you so they, they feel able to say anything in front of you. And I think with, with younger actors, I do always try, especially if I think someone is struggling with something a moment. Um, there was a movie in particular I did where my, 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 the woman who played my daughter, the girl, um, she's a woman, she's a woman now, um, but she, she had, some trouble with some of the more emotional moments. It's actually happened twice, um, where one had a lot of trouble to the point where we sometimes had to shut things down. Um, and weirdly, I kind of handled both of them in a very, very similar way where, because I was playing their mom, I became the person they would come and try to talk to. And I would just listen to them. I would just let them talk. Um, and then when they ran out of steam, I would say, well, you know, you know, I, and I'd say what I thought, but really people just want someone to listen to them. <laughs> There's some of that I was taking notes for my own niece who isn't talking yet, but when she is, I will be sure to listen to her. Yeah. So I have another Instagram question, but I'm going to save that to lead into social distance. First, I want to talk about some of the movies on your filmography here. And the first one that caught my eye was Django Unchained, partially because on and like I, I, never, out of it. <laughs> I never know what uh, certain things on IMDb can mean. Like sometimes when you see uncredited, you don't know if it's because you were cut out because you just didn't want to like take the, the screen credit for the role or what it was. So what was your experience on Django and, and how did you end up in that situation on that one? Oh man, I'm not even sure how much you can say or not say. I, I auditioned a bunch of times for the lead in Django. Um, I was a complete unknown. 
Um, the part that Kerry Washington eventually did brilliantly. Um, I was completely unknown. I'd never even, I don't know, I'd never really done a movie, like, like not a big budget film at all. You know, I did this taped audition in New York and then the next thing they were flying me just to meet Quentin Tarantino in LA and then he flew me to Louisiana. And then, um, oh wait, maybe it was the other way around. Anyway, it, he flew me places where I met with him um, and auditioned with just him and his casting, uh, Vicky Thomas, his casting director, who's wonderful. Um, and then I didn't get the part, which I, I weirdly, I was so excited to be auditioning for Quentin Tarantino. I was just like, whatever, like, you know, I can't believe I got as far as I got being someone who was completely unknown and all of those things. And then um, I had read the script. The script was, I'm not joking. It was this thick. I remember specifically this giant script. And I the part I eventually shot was not in this giant script. I almost feel like, and this is just me, thinking that Quentin Tarantino cares about me this much. I feel like he wrote me a part <laughs> after like flying me all over the place because this thing didn't exist, right? And then suddenly they send me this, this um, it's one of the slaves, she's in the big house and she has this interaction with Christoph Waltz and Samuel L. Jackson. It's like, you know, the, the, the big names. She has this very sort of funny interaction coming up the steps. I did it. I went to it, flew again to New Orleans, um, shot it. Uh, with with Sam and, and Christoph Waltz and on this wonderful, insane set. I even ran into Carrie. I kind of knew Carrie from before, but like I even ran into her. We had a big chat and it was just so wonderful to like be in this thing. I eventually got cut. I understand actually why I got cut because I think the scene that happens right before my scene, my, my scene was repetitive. For in terms of the dynamics, what they were showing about the slaves, because my scene was all with, it was um, Sam Jackson basically yelling at me, but he had kind of just done that outside with Carrie. And I do feel like, oh, okay. I think I would have cut my scene too. It's repetitive. We just saw him doing the same humiliating, yelling at, you know, uh, mocking a woman outside. And then he comes in and he kind of does the same thing to me. So that's what happened. This is the second. I, think I had a name too, but I don't even remember what my slave name was. This is the second conversation I've had with someone who got cut out of a big movie, and I just have so much respect for the way that you both look at it and just how you can understand the big picture and not just thinking of yourselves. Because, like, I'm very sensitive about my work, and I feel like I probably wouldn't have handled it that well. Okay, so here's the thing. This was eight years ago, maybe. I don't know if I handled it extremely well when I found that. I've had some time to reflect, to be mature about it. That's when fair. I found out, I was devastated. And I think at that point, my husband, and now we do not do it. My husband, I told everybody I was in Django Unchained. And then they go to the movie theater and I am not in Django Unchained. So I don't do that anymore. I'm like, do not say a word until I see the final cut of this thing and know for sure. That is understandable. So it taught me, me a good lesson, but yeah, I, I don't know that I was super mature to begin with. With that in mind, if it was tough for you to get past that, what was the project that kind of pulled you out of it? Uh, it wasn't that tough. I, yeah, I mean, 
I didn't dwell on it. I don't know that I dwelled on it for more than like, you know, the week of opening when it opened and I realized that wasn't it. And then I was like, oh man, that sucks. And then I had to tell everybody, hey guys, remember how I said I was going to be in Django Unchained? I am not in Django Unchained, but no, I don't. I think at that point I was working on something else. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Even for auditions that like I will prepare for hours for or days even, I'll, I'll, I had to learn a language recently for something. We will prepare forever. It will be the most important thing in that moment. And the minute you're done with it, at least for me, and especially since I have small children, I have to, I have to get rid of it. It has to go because I have to make room for everything else. So the minute I'm done with it, I'm like, all right, didn't get that one. Boom, it's gone. And I got to prep for the next thing. So I'm sure what happened is I found out I was in Django. I grieved for a couple of days. I told my family they grieved. And then it was like, let's keep it moving. At the time, I think I had a two-year-old in 2012. I can't even remember when it came out. But, you know, I had a, my, my daughter was born in 2010. So I imagine... I didn't have any time to be thinking about no daggone Django Unchained. You know Good what I'm saying? for you. <laughs> I, I don't care what industry you're in. I feel like having that mentality to be able to move past things like that is mighty important. You have to. You have to. And then we get rejected so many times, so many various forms of rejection, not just being cut out of something, but like, you know, like there are people, they will tell you you're not pretty enough for a role. They'll tell you you're not thin enough. You're not big enough, you're not enough of a name. There's so many levels that we have to deal with that you can't take, you you weirdly can't take any of it personally. You kind of have to just keep it moving. I hate to like say that, I feel so cliche when people say that and when I hear myself say it, but you really do, you have to keep it moving. It's yeah. true. And the truth of the matter is you have been accepted into so many wonder, wonderful projects and roles. Yeah. And I have so many more collaborators to ask you about, I think. <laughs> I think the first one I want to ask about is working with Daniel Craig on Othello. Actually, oh. that was Daniel Craig and Rachel Brosnahan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what and David Oyelowo. David oh, I just spoke to David and he is wonderful and he just did his uh, feature directorial debut. So oh many good things God. for all of you right now. And he's like father of four or five. How many kids he got? He got a whole gang of kids. Um, no, David is actually a good example of just like, we got to keep it moving, you know? And weirdly, I think having a family helps with that a little bit. You just can't dwell on yourself too much when you got other people you're really having to think about all the time. Um, but, okay, so Daniel. Right. Uh, he's lovely. It was that whole experience. I mean, I just, you know, I just shot a film with Rachel. That whole experience was just remarkable in so many ways. A lot of it being that we were off Broadway. So it wasn't this huge show. Um, it was huge in terms of who was in it. Like, you know, 007 is in your play. You're going to get sold out before you even, the minute we announced we were sold out. Sounds very right. It was huge in like that, but we were in this tiny theater, New York Theater Workshop downtown. When I say tiny, I mean, probably as big as a large studio apartment. <laughs> We were all in one dressing room. They just had a curtain between the boys and the girls. There were three girls and maybe 10 boys. So my little desk was next to David's desk, but we had a curtain between us right here. And, but I literally could like reach over and like grab all his makeup and steal all his shit. Um, oh, can I say shit? 
Um, yes, you can. <laughs> we don't edit. Oh, okay, great. Like, <laughs> you know, like we were arm's length. I mean, I could, I don't even think I could reach my arm out with, and not touch Rachel. Like, I, I could probably go like this and I would have touched Rachel and she would go like this and touch Nikki. Like, we were right next to each other. So it was a little bit like doing theater in college. <laughs> um, and, you know, no frills. Nobody's bringing us lunch or dinner. Got to go out and get your own stuff. And Daniel, what was wonderful about him, first of all, my audition with him, I don't know why, but I went in and I'd done a bunch of, you know, Shakespeare and I was pretty confident with my Shakespeare stuff. But, and I don't know if he did this on purpose, I should ask him at some point. He seemed so nervous that I ended up being not nervous. Does that make sense? It does. He was like sweating. I think at even one at one point I even said he started speaking. We started doing the scene. He started speaking, and he was speaking so low that I was like, "What? What are you saying? I can't hear you." I was like, "Are you nervous? You need to speak up or something." And and I found out later on Jack was impressed by the fact that I wasn't intimidated by Daniel, and I was like yelling at him right away <laughs> to speak up. So. It doesn't surprise me that him being nervous made you less nervous, but it does make me really, and, and this is probably just because I'm so used to seeing him as super confident James Bond right now. It yeah. does really surprise me that he was nervous at all. He was, he was sweating. I mean, maybe he was trying to make me feel less nervous, but can he manufacture sweat? I don't know. He was really, <laughs> maybe was a Shakespeare thing. Like who knows? All I know is, I went in there and what I saw was somebody who was like a deer caught in headlights a little bit, a little panicky. And I was like, try, I immediately tried to sort of make him laugh um, by yelling at him. And then we had like the best audition. Um, so we went from like this, you know, very big audition. And then Sam Gold wanted us to do it as very intimate. He was like, you know, pretend like you're in a, in a movie and you're just talking to each other right here. Don't make it theatrically big, but make it like movie big. And we ended up doing this really emotional, crazy scene, like right up on each other and up. There you go. The rest is history. But he's, he's lovely. He was just, it's just fun to be around. He'd be backstage playing his guitar and none of that big, you know, confident as you say, James Bond personality at all. Unless, except for when he was on stage and he had to be Iago, you know. How about reuniting with Rachel for I'm Your Woman? Uh, that movie is high up on my most anticipated list. I am so pumped for that. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was that was all Rachel. That's my girl for life. <laughs> for life. That was Rachel. She, we had done Othello. We had you know, been in the trenches together. I'd gone to see a play with her. I can't even remember what it was. So maybe we're just going to dinner or something. And she said, oh, I pitched you for this thing. And she was telling me how she had just started, you had a production deal with Amazon and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of did one of those things. I kind of did like, yeah, yeah, okay. Because in my mind, I was just like, listen, Rachel, you're beautiful, you're sweet. But no one is going to cast me in their major because you said so. As far as I know, people don't listen to actors. Usually you have to be a studio head or what, you know, unless you're the actor who is in charge, like you're the head of the production company. She wasn't quite there yet. So I was kind of like, 
okay, that's sweet. Thanks for pitching me for this film you're gonna be in. I just, you know, at the time I didn't realize she was a producer. And then I saw her again, we had gone to see um, Sam Gold's maybe Lear on Broadway. And, you know, we were talking again and she says it again. And I, I kind of looked at her like, oh, this is like the second time you've brought this thing up. <laughs> okay, all right, we'll see what happens. But again, super just not confident that this was really a thing. And then they sent it to me and I was like, holy crap, this is the thing, she's producing it. Oh, okay. But I still had to speak to the, to Julia Hart. Um, and I don't think it was, it wasn't until I got nominated for an Emmy that I think I was really a person they were seriously considering. But I will say Rachel, to the end, she never gave them another name. She was like, this is a person, this is who you're gonna look at. You could look at whoever else you want, but this is who I want. And so the Emmy nomination solidified it, solidified me for them. But in I feel like in Rachel's mind, it was always me. I have so many follow-ups. First, I will say this is what excites me most about seeing artists that I admire go from acting to also kind of taking the reins and becoming yes. producers as well, because yes. I think that level of understanding is very important. So the Emmy. The yes, Emmy yes. might have made a difference in this project, but what about for you, just in your head? At that moment, you had accomplished so much. Was your confidence level already where it needed to be, or did that even change things for you? Let me tell you something. I don't know who you've spoken to, but I don't know any confident actors. <laughs> I think we're all, and especially the ones who you think have done good work and consistently good work, I think the reason we keep pushing is because we're not that confident. Um, we're always trying to be better and we we watch things and we think we suck, you know? I mean, it's still hard. I, I still can't really watch something. You know, the only thing I was able to watch, this is a little bit of a tangent. Um, you know that movie Loose that I was in? I am obsessed with Loose. That wound up being one of my favorite movies of last year. Oh my God, thank you. But let me tell you something. I was able to watch Loose because I don't really look like myself in Loose. And I don't really, even though I know that Rosemary is in me and in my body somewhere, it's not how I encounter the world on a, on the, on a normal day. And so I weirdly, it's like the furthest, the further away I am from the character, the more I am able to maybe watch myself. But if I'm playing someone who's close to me, to me, how I think of myself, like, you know, my character and how to get away with murder or name any number of, you know, TV shows, I can't really watch those with confidence. I pick myself apart. And most actors I know do that. So who are these confident actors you're meeting? Because I want to... <laughs> I talk to them. Part of me wants to be like, what are you talking about? You should love everything you do. But then I see what I do. Like I'm in lockdown with my family right now. So I'll walk into a room and my mom's listening to one of my interviews. And, and you like, hear yourself and you're like, it's painful. I can't do it. I run away. Especially when you hear, there's something about hearing yourself, right? When you're like, I, that's what I sound like. Why would anyone listen to me? <laughs> I, I really know that all too well. 
Okay, bringing bringing up loose. This is yeah. something that Kelvin got me started with. So, oh, I love. Her. Don't you love Kelvin? He's amazing. I also just saw Trial of the Chicago Seven, and he is quite good in it. He yeah, always he's, he's he's good in everything. <laughs> and one of the best people out there. He's fantastic. He really. He really is. So during our interview, he was telling me he watched other interviews. So I asked him what question he would most want to hear other actors answer. And I've okay. kind of like kept the ball rolling. And the latest one that I had pitch a question was Geraldine Viswanathan. And the question that she wanted me to pass along was, what is the very first thing you like to do when you get your script? Oh, the very first thing. Hmm. I it might have changed since I had kids because I actually I really love reading and I used to read a lot more before I had kids. I I love a story. So I think when I was younger, right? I used to go through the skip script and see how many times my character spoke, right? <laughs> Interesting, Obnoxious. I'd just be like, how often do I occur in this thing? And what do I have to do? Like, do I have to get naked? Do I have to, you know, do some scene where I'm completely out of mind, out of body, whatever. Um, but I actually love like finding a spot. Kind of what I do with my books. I find my little spot. I get my little drink, my tea and my crumpets or whatever, you know, my brownie. I like like a little sweet something with my tea. And I just love to immerse myself into a story. Um, so probably the first thing I do is just make sure I have time and a spot to read it, to like really give it my full attention. And by the way, I am one of those people who will read anything. One of my jobs that I wanted as a temp, I wanted to just be a copy editor so I would so people would just send me things to read like I just wanted to like I don't know send me your cereal box I'll, I'll copy edit your cereal box you know what I mean whatever it is I just wanted things to read the idea of like words and, and maybe this is also I know it's for Miss Hunter like words and the meaning of words and how we use words um, it's so funny because even now when I text Miss Hunter you know normally I text my friends. I use all kinds of shortenings. You're, you are, you know, I, 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 tomorrow is a two and tomorrow. I never do that with Miss Hunter. Like I write, <laughs> I write my text to her as though I am writing like an English paper because I don't want her to write me back and say, Hey, um, you just ended, you, you have a dangling participle or whatever. Like I just <laughs> never, wanted her to judge my text messages. Anyway, I just went off on a tangent. What were we talking about? I like that tangent. Uh, the first thing you do when you get a script. Oh, when I get a script, I find, yeah, I find, I make sure I have time. So I don't, I wouldn't read it right away unless it's like, oh, you need to get back to us by, you know, in an hour or whatever. I make sure I have time and quiet, quiet place to immerse oh, yeah. myself into whatever the story is. Yeah. So bringing up Miss Hunter again gives me another excuse to go back to your Instagram page. Yeah. So you, 
I really can't believe how much you've accomplished. Like, I, I know we're all in lockdown and we don't have the same things taking up our time. So maybe we have more free time, but I feel like finding the motivation is something that many are struggling with. So with everything you uh, have accomplished in the past couple of months, like where where do you find the the energy, the motivation, the determination to do it all? I remember early on, my sister's a doctor. One of my best friends from high school is a doctor here in New York. And I just remember early on them talking about the pandemic and COVID and that the numbers we were seeing were going to increase and blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to be useful. So I started making the masks. Um, and that was a thing that really was just a great way to just occupy my mind, just on so many levels, just to not, because we couldn't go outside. So it was something to do inside, but it was also like, I'm helping somehow, I'm helping to, to end this thing or doing something towards ending this thing. And then um, it was just like a busy work for me to get into. Um, I could involve my kids. Um, you know, just for me, I the idea of waiting for work or waiting for things to pick up again, I just, I was never going to be that person. <laughs> Good, good for you, because I feel like you're doing a lot of good and you're spreading a lot of good vibes in the process. And I feel like people need to see examples like that being set because you don't know who out there is scrolling through your Instagram page and need some of that motivation themselves. I hope so. I hope I'm inspiring on Instagram. Sometimes I feel like I'm just angry on Instagram, but I'm glad you're saying that I'm inspiring. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's very understandable too. And actually speaking of that, while I was prepping for this, I was actually chit-chatting with some of the staff and we were looking at a lot of your TV credits and a lot of them do tackle the legal system and they do it from a whole different bunch of perspectives. So yeah. I was wondering, and it also kind of ties into what you were saying before about the producers having the power and the writers having the power to tell stories a certain way. But given what's going on in the country right now, is there anything you want to do as an actor in order to tell those stories a different way moving forward? You know, and this is not to indict anyone that I've worked with, but I recently did a TV show where my director was a female person of color. And I will say, even on the smallest scale, where it just was like something that in the long run probably doesn't matter so much, it was just easy to have conversations. I, I, I was again playing, and I think this does happen to Black actresses, no, actually, no matter what your age. I think as long as you're a teenager, you're playing a mom from your teenager all the way through to when you die. And a lot of times for women of color, that means that you're in some kind of trauma. That's what we've seen, right? We rarely, we they're like these very small examples um, of just black people living and being free and in love and happy. <laughs> there are all these examples, like you say, of black moms fighting the criminal justice system, fighting to get their kid out of jail, fighting to get justice for their child, their husband, their brother, their whatever, like black women in, our industry are always fighting for something and in life, but that's another story. Um, but what was wonderful of having a black female director was sitting down and talking about stuff with her and not having to like start at the beginning. She knew where I was, where I was coming from and we'd have these very short conversations and she, I'd say, you know, in that scene, I feel like this is how it's written. 
but I feel like if I say it, I think how they want me to say it, how it says it on the page, I feel like that's just doing a disservice to this woman. And I don't, I, I, as a mom, I just, I feel like it's a lot deeper than that. So can we figure out what that moment is? And she'd be like, got it. You know what I mean? It was just like a, it was like a shorthand. Like there was just no, and I, I've met, I weirdly, one of my favorite directors is this guy, um, Sam, that I worked with on this film, Stand Clear of the Closing Doors. And he's a white man. And I have a wonderful relationship with Sam. He did grow up in New York, maybe that's why, but he kindly gets it. And I can have those conversations with Sam as a white man. So I'm not saying I can't have the conversation. You know what I mean? But yeah, it, it's nice. I think the reason we keep saying we, people of color, in the industry keep saying we need more representation at the table it's because of things like this it's so that our characters aren't stereotypical or a cliche so that a mom or even the son who's in prison let's say you're you're we're going to keep writing these dramatic stories let's find the heart in this these are human beings you know nothing is cut and dried so Let's try to figure out how we can get to the heart of the matter. And then maybe we can start seeing some changes in how we're represented. But like, we have to start there, you know? I hear you. I've seen- What Ava, Ava is- Yes. Talk about heart, heart. I'm like kicking myself for not having asked this question more often on Ladies Night. But when I was first starting out, I would always ask someone, who is someone who, who is a female filmmaker in the industry that you think is changing the industry for the better? And when I was asking that early on, like I heard Ava's name more times than I could count. Really? Yeah, because she she really is. She's something she's, special. She's definitely something special. And and she she like, you know, she walks the walk. And she That's says, I'm gonna get more people of color, more women on set, and she goes out there and she finds those people. All the all, all the the people who say, "Well, we we tried, but we couldn't find anyone." And it was like I found half of my crew was all women of women of color, people of color. You know, like how come you didn't LGBTQ? Like I found them. They've been they've been here. Don't tell me you look for them. She says everything with such purpose, determination, and heart. I believe everything she everything says. I know. Why do I need that right now? And let me tell you, she's not. I have seen her give what I think because we were doing so much press last year together. Mm -hmm. And I look at her like that was, I think, off the cuff, but the, the most intelligent, eloquent, just insightful thing. But this just like she just speaks like that. You know, I'd be fumfering around trying to find my words, and Ava would just they'd ask her some complicated question, and she would just like nail the hell out of it. I was in awe of her. I will say, I am in awe of her. Yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from her. I share that feeling, um, and give yourself some credit too, because this is this is so lovely that I still haven't asked about social distance, and usually I'm much better at keeping myself on time. <laughs> so, <laughs> jumping into that, yes, is it safe to assume that you got involved in this episode through your involvement in Orange Is the New Black? I mean, maybe, maybe they knew about me, and you know, I. But no, it, it's not like Genji called me and said, "Hey, I want you to be my next thing." Like that did not happen. Um, 
my agents were the first who, who called me about it. And then they told me, you know, it's the creators from Orange, um, some of the people invo- involved with Orange. And they definitely, they wanted a mom and a child um, because we were shooting in quarantine. So this kind of brings everything full circle because talking about like remote schooling and levels of how you talk to your kids and then the stress and confidence and being an actor and being a mom and huh, that was this project tested all of those things for me. <laughs> like how much do you know how much do you know about the process about what oh, we I actually have- did? I have so many questions about this process. <laughs> I still do, and I and I did it. Um, yeah, it was intense. Do you have any crew members whatsoever with you while you're doing that? No, 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 no. You know who my crew was? Okay, I'm gonna tell you who my crew was. My husband Gregory, and my two children who are ten and six, and one of them was an actor in it, so she could barely be crew because she had to act. So. My 10-year-old, who wants to be a director, she says, was very excited. My husband, a little less so, but again, we're all quarantined. We're in the house all day long. And when this project came and I told him about it, he was like, well, we're inside all day long. We might as well do something fun together. Um, And I will say, in hindsight, it was fun. But while I was going through it, I was like, this is insane. It was a lot of work. They had to drop everything at the bottom of the steps. So they had to, they delivered computers and camera equipment and phones. We were doing iPhones plus real cameras. The wonderful thing is my husband's a professional photographer. So I know that my set, I don't know how other people did it. My set was easier for me because I had a husband who knew all the lingo. So they would say, hey, Gregory, can you attach the Q967, try something to the blah, 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 blah. And he'd be like, yep. And they'd say, oh my God, it took, the last actor we did that with, it took them 45 minutes to figure it out. And you just did it in two seconds. And he's like, guys, I'm a professional photographer. So I told them they're welcome. I, I married well. Um, I gave him an actor and a DP. <laughs> and he had to be crew. So we had to assemble. There, there was furniture being sent to the house. We had to assemble furniture. So he had to bring everything in. We had to be crew. I had to be hair and makeup. I mean, they, everyone was on Zoom consulting with us, like all the, the DP and the director and hair and makeup and everyone. But we were the only people physically on set, right? We were on site. So I had to do my hair and makeup, my daughter's hair and makeup, or she didn't really wear makeup. I had to do wardrobe. I had to keep track of things like, oh my God, the earrings I had on yesterday. So I had to do continuity. Um, and then at the end of the day, we'd finish and I would be exhausted beyond words because not only when I wasn't on camera, that meant my, my kid probably was, and I had to like be her, you know, assistant director, mommy, catering, <laughs> child wrangler, person who got her out of the tantrum she was currently throwing, like all of those things. And then the, end, the day would end and I'd take a deep breath, like, oh, I'm so glad to be done. And then I'd realize you're not done. First of all, you have another kid that you need to go pay some attention to, but also 
you have to prep your lines, your acting, your whatever for tomorrow, and you have to prep the child. Oh my. <laughs> you're tired from me just talking about it. Look at you, you're exhausted. I, I mean, you're also you're also talking to someone who is very happy with a cat right now, and I'm exhausted <laughs> after an hour with my niece. <laughs> so I have so much respect for what you went through here. As as someone with so much experience on set before doing this, is there anything about the filmmaking process that you didn't even realize until everything was in your hands here? I never took being on set for granted. I, I understand the privilege that it is. I think I didn't really realize why it's so important to have as many people doing what seems to be like the little things because it, it, it really is the little things that will undo you right will be on your undoing for example like there was one day where my daughter had on she had on like an undershirt so we we shot in june but we were supposed to be march right so what she had on was very hot, but I still had to put an undershirt on her because we had to put a mic pack on her and the mic pack was itchy. So we had to figure out, put on an undershirt then figure out how to tape the mic pack to her, you know, so it doesn't show and then put on her overshirt and then make sure everything, because she's running around and being a kid, none of that can show. And then also keep like, there's this little antenna on your mic pack that you, if, if it sticks out of your shirt, you can see that there's like a little antenna. <laughs> it's literally like this little, just pokey thing that it, on camera, you know, you, you're fine. You think you're fine. And then you watch a, a take and you realize a stupid little thing was poking out. But like little things like that, that I never gave a second thought about taping the mic in the right place, taping the antenna, that's someone's job on set. You know, there's usually your sound engineer, your sound designer, but then sometimes they'll have an assistant and the assistant's job is to just tape your stuff down so that the freaking little thing doesn't stick. And that could ruin a take. And so, so it's like all the little things. It's like the keeping track of the little earrings or, or making sure like we had clean socks for the next day or what, or make sure that like the socks were there. So I, again, because I'm ADD, OCD, um, a little bit. Enough, enough to get by. But um, thank God, because I was meticulous about, we would get, get undressed in the space. I wouldn't let my daughter like run away and get undressed like in her room or anything. I'd be like, nope, take it all off right here. Because if you go upstairs, I am not going to be able to find one shoe tomorrow and I'm going to lose my shit. So it would be like, nope, we are stripping down right here. Let's make sure all the Zoom cameras are off because we had like all these computers with the Zoom <laughs> from production. And so we'd end for the day, Zoom cameras are off. All right, strip down right here. Take everything off, hang it up, put it in this closet right here. And now you may go upstairs. After this whole experience, how does your daughter feel about her directing goals? Is it like still super into it or that was a lot? She, she, she goes back and forth. She realizes that it was a lot. Um, but she still thinks we, because we, you know, the end product is so exciting. This is what, this is how actors get into acting. <laughs> it's like all this work. And then it's like having a kid. When you have a kid, when, when you go through labor, you're like, this is the worst thing ever. I am never doing this again. I, I want to die. I want to kill everyone around me. 
no more, one kid. And then it comes and you have this cute little kid. And like within two weeks, you're like, I want another one. Like, it's like that. <laughs> That's what acting is. Acting is like, or, or, or being in a production or doing something like social distance, like all this work. And you're like, never again. And then you see it and you're like, I want another one. <laughs> Especially something like this too. And in a format like what social distance does, because I feel like, whether you can connect to just one episode of the show or a whole bunch of them, there is something that's going to speak to what you are personally going through right now. Yes. And I think the way they track it is really beautiful because, it, you know, it tracks, it, it sort of starts at the beginning of quarantine and tracks through the months. Each, each episode is, you know, maybe another month in, another month in. And like, I think we will all watch it and relate to what we were at the beginning of quarantine to like what we are now, you know what I mean? Like this is, this probably is the show that, that I'm on that is the most current unfolding right now, like up to date, you know, short of reality TV. This is like, you know, our version, I guess, of reality TV. <laughs> And it's wonderful, wonderful that like, not wonderful, because, you know, it's not great to be in quarantine and it's not great, obviously, all the people who have passed away or have gotten sick, but because we're all going through it. That's this unique thing where like, there isn't a person on this earth who can't relate to something, to each other, to, you know what I mean? That's crazy. Like we're all going through this thing, all of us. That's why I'm especially glad you guys kind of all banded together and did this because I've always had great appreciation for storytelling in all formats, but the level of attachment I've had to it over the last seven months is kind of like next level need to see these stories in order to process my own emotions. So I don't know what I would do without this stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, what, what's wonderful about art and the art that we're making, performance art, is that we, we are here to make sure stories are told, um, to keep people's stories alive, but also to entertain in times like this where, I don't know, I, there is something, maybe it's naive of me to think this, but there is something, even if you're going through a horrible time, there's something about knowing someone else is experiencing the same thing. You know what I mean? And bringing it again back to, I just remember being a, a new mom, right? <clears throat> I would be panicky. And sometimes it was late at night and I couldn't call my mom. And you know, my mom hadn't been a mom for decades anyway. So it's not like it was right, you know, and like I would go online, which they tell you not to do. <laughs> but every once in a while you'd, you'd hit a group of new moms and they were going through exactly the same thing. And you just felt better. I don't know what it is about that. It's just like, as horrible as you would feel, it just made you feel better that you weren't the only one, that you, you weren't being uniquely traumatized, that other people were, exact, it was, were experiencing the same thing or similar things, and that you were kind of all in it together. And also there would be those moms who'd be like, all right, I was here two months ago and now I'm here and you are gonna get through this. 
So there was that too. There was like the mom who had done it already, but recently enough that she remembered and she just reminded you that you were going to be okay. And I think social distance is that too. It's like, you know, we are all in it together. We're at different levels of this thing, but we're gonna be okay. In one way or another, we're gonna be okay. I don't think there's a better place to end, even though like you're too easy to talk to. I could talk to you forever. And I, f I feel like there's someone behind the scenes giving me the wrap up say that's, that's oh, no. the thing about these Zoom calls. I can't see the wrap up signal, so I don't know what's going on. I know. And actually, the great thing about these Zoom calls, too, is you think you're, you know, I feel like I'm just talking to you and we're just on this phone call together. And hopefully I didn't say anything crazy because no, I you made me very comfortable. Thank oh. you. I appreciate you saying that that is my goal. And I really just want to keep using this platform we have to share everyone's hard work and all their accomplishments and their experiences, because I really do think there's great value to all of that. Yes. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.